Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to the Political Party Podcast. This episode features Kate Andrews, Associate Director at the Institute for Economic Affairs. You've probably seen Kate on Politics Live, Question Time, pretty much every political TV and comment and news show going. She's one of the rising stars of this new era, uh, of a new of a new class, a new uh, generation of political pundits. Kate and I did Question Time together a couple of years ago and um, despite, well, we agreed on some things and disagreed on others, but I, I think it's always so reassuring when you can disagree and get on and be civil and uh, I've been dying to get her on so it was great to finally get her on the show and talk about her own politics, uh, what the Institute of Economic Affairs does, where it stands on some of the key issues, how it goes about its work, the influence it tries to have. Because there are all these think tanks out there on left, right and centre, all trying to have influence, all trying to shape the world in which we live. And it's great just to get under the surface and see what these people think uh, and how they try and achieve uh, that change. And to do it crucially... um, civilly and respectfully, which is, uh, you know, a a key tenant, I think, of this show. So it's a brilliant chat. Kate is um, absolutely reasonable. Even even at times when I disagree with her, she puts her case in such a reasonable way. And I didn't realise this until she said it towards the end of the interview. She's only 29, which is incredible. I mean, there are so many guests I talk to on here that have long, bright futures ahead of them. But you get the sense when you talk to Kate, you're talking to someone who could go and do such incredible things, you know, whether you agree with her or not. And and you have to respect um, the, the talent and ability that people have in able to make a case, make it persuasive, and make it reasonable. So it's a fascinating interview with someone who uh, understandably and justifiably has already become uh, a star on our screens and on our airwaves. Uh, airwaves. I don't know why I said it like I was from Somerset. She's been a big fan, a big star on the airwaves. Please enjoy Kate Andrews. I'm delighted this week to be joined by Kate Andrews, Associate Director at the Institute for Economic Affairs. Kate, welcome to the show. I'm excited to be here, Matt. I'm excited to have you here. We met a few years ago. We were both on Question Time. It was. It was my first one and you were very nice to me. Oh, was I? Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah, a smiley face. Oh, that's good. Yes, it's always nice. Um... Well, because on that program, I think it's one of the only programs where um, the panel actually feels like they're quite united, even though they have different perspectives, yes. of course, because you're terrified of the audience. <laughs> so it was it was good to make a friend. Who else was on that one? Um, Matt Hancock was on it. That's right. Matt yeah, Hancock. Long before the days of Health Secretary. Uh, who else? Oh, gosh. This is bad. We should remember. We should. You you were my best friend out of the Okay. Panel. Oh, so, well, that's good. So, yeah, okay. you were the takeaway. Well, it's good to see you again. Good to see you, too. 
Oh, I think Ken Livingstone was on, wasn't he? He was, and he made the news because he made some not-so-appropriate comments about... Uh, the seven seven, magazine. yeah, and Pete Wishart from the SNP. I think. Well done, yes. That was it. There you go. I knew well I'd, I knew I'd done. remember them all. I knew <laughs> I'd remember. Yes, because I had a row with Ken about his comments about. You did. Oh yeah, I'm tiny I think we none of us were terribly impressed by those comments. No, he didn't do himself a service that day. No. Um, but let's not talk about him today. Um, <laughs> what do you want to talk about today? Well, it'd be great to talk about your work at the Institute for Economic Affairs. Yeah. So you're an associate director. What does an associate director do that a director can or doesn't do? It's a great question. I ask myself that every day. But basically, I uh, I oversee our, our media, public affairs, and digital outreach. Uh, so uh, combining all those departments. So, you know, just a lot of the outward-facing public stuff that the IA does to um, try to educate the public about free markets and free people. And you're very clear, the IEA, I think I'm right in saying this, that you are not right-wing, mm-hmm. that you're free market. Yes, it is different. There is a distinction there. <laughs> I, I suppose more that it's an economic sense yeah. rather than a kind of social... Well, so I, I, the key actually is that we, we do focus on the economic and the social, uh, but we are not in any way socially right wing. Um, we don't have a corporate line at the IEA, so we all internally debate really niche libertarian topics, which would be of <laughs> no interest to your audience. Uh, well, some interest, I think. <laughs> but oftentimes, you know, in, in my department, we'll get calls from producers and they'll say, can you come on to speak about immigration? And we're like, yes, great. And they're like, so you're really against it, right? And we're like, no, no, we, we, we like immigrants. We, we like the... Um, the economic and social benefits they bring to society. And that's really the difference, I think, between sort of more small L liberal attitude and a right wing attitude is that you tend to be economically on the right, but socially more on the left. And in terms of immigration, do you welcome all immigration uh, unfettered? (laughs) Or do you say, well, actually, there are limits and we should value different types of immigration more? Well, I'm I'm a strong believer in the nation state. I think it literally makes our world go round. And so I completely appreciate that people want to have some kind of say or control over who comes into the country. But I would almost always advocate for a more liberal system, which is controlled, uh, but open. Um, You know, I think the vast, vast majority of people who uproot their lives to come and work in your country or live in your country, they want to be there. They want to contribute. They want to be taxpayers. They want to be a part of your society. And, uh, you know, foreigners are much more likely to start businesses in the UK uh, than natives. You know, they're people who are contributing. And I think we need to take a really positive attitude towards them. Um, And, you know, I don't see eye to eye with The Guardian's editorial line on many topics, but good on them for raising all of these horror stories that come out of the Home Office of, you know, People, you know, the government uprooting people who've been here for sometimes decades, contributing, you know, um, authors, academics, scientists, trying to send them home. I mean, it's really grim. And you speak from a, a certain amount of personal experience. You're yeah. an immigrant uh, to this country. So what was it that attracted you to the UK? I came to study at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland in 2008. Uh, I fell in love with Scotland um, and, you know, have just have found myself gravitating here and, and wanting to be here now now in London. And I've been here for close to a decade. Um, I was heavily impacted by Theresa May's activity when she was in the Home Office. It was two months before I graduated that she changed the rule to stop students students from staying for two years and now could only stay for two months. So I had to leave. So when I came back, you know, my my process of being able to be here with a visa, you know, it's been quite stressful. Um, I'm not eligible for leave to remain still 
having been here for almost a decade because exactly what Theresa May's policies did. Very happy to see that Boris Johnson administration has rolled that back. Um, so, you know, I, I can speak firsthand to some of this stuff, but I like to remind people that, you know, I've had a difficult time of it and I'm the most privileged migrant you'll find, right? <laughs> I'm from America. I speak English. I'm white. Like I'm college educated or university educated. Um, I'm the most privileged immigrant you'll find and I find it difficult. So what do you think it's like for people who might struggle with the English language um, and, you know, who didn't access university? It's really difficult. I mean, America's seen... Uh, I was in New York recently, and, and, and despite the, whatever the you know the, the politics of America from time to time, or indeed the politics of the president, as the sort of home of immigrants yeah. in a way in the free world, it's where immigrants go with their hopes and dreams. And New York has that unique um, atmosphere to it. As a result, it yeah. feels that it's owned by the world in a sense. Um, so it's odd that you you come here rather than go to say New York, which feels more like a, a place for. Oh, I love New York City. That sort of City. idea. Oh, New York, New York feels like home in many ways. I was born and raised in Connecticut, right outside of New York, so I'm very, very familiar with the city. I love New York and London. I can't really tell you what keeps pulling me here, Matt. Um, my, 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 good, my really good friends um, uh, got so annoyed with me for so many years because I'd always say, guys, I'm only here for another six months, and then I'm going back. I'm going back. Get ready for me to leave. I'm going home. And, you know, it's almost a decade, and I haven't done it, so they don't take me so seriously anymore. <laughs> they think I'm just crying wolf. Um, no, I mean, America's wonderful. We have incredible cities, but there's nowhere like London. No, they're, 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 I mean, both have their unique yeah, uh, uh, attractions. Um, oh, you worked in American politics for a brief time, two mm-hmm. months on the scheduling team of the Romney for President campaign. The best president we never had. I'm sticking to that. <laughs> well, think about it, Matt. Let me put this to you. Would you prefer now two terms of Obama and a term and possibly two terms of Trump or one term of Obama and we could be in our second term of President Mitt Romney? Which would you take? I'm not. Well, I, I think two terms of Obama doesn't sound too bad. I don't have a problem with that part of the equation. I know you I'd don't, rather, but there's quite a key other aspect. I'd rather solve the, the other end of it. <laughs> Romney, of course, tried to stop Trump from becoming president. He did. Yes, he's a never Trumper like myself. Uh, yeah. And uh, so, did you get to meet him when you were working there? I've never met President Mitt. Sorry, President Mitt Romney. <laughs> oh Gosh, my I wish. I've never met a presidential candidate, Mitt Romney. Um, I met Paul Ryan. Uh, his VP candidate yes, at yeah. the time. Uh, no, I never got to meet him. I was way too low down the food chain to do so. So, in terms of Romney's politics, were they were they quite closely aligned to yours, or were you a Republican? Therefore, you supported the Republican. Yeah, candidate? to be honest, not 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 completely. I mean, he was much more hawkish than I am on foreign policy. Much more of a small C conservative. I didn't line up with him on social issues. But in America, you know, it really is a two party system. We don't have the same luxury, I think, here in the UK of being able to vote for four or five different parties to think that they might actually gain some traction. Uh, So you're very much a Republican or a Democrat in the States. And I have always been a a committed and proud Republican, really up into the age of of Donald Trump. I was a spokesperson for Republicans overseas here in the UK until Trump got the nomination. Uh, And that just wasn't something I could do anymore because his opinions... what can I say on a podcast? <laughs> oh, you can uh, say whatever you like. This is unregulated media. Uh, I, yeah, it, they just many of them just disgust me. I just couldn't go down that path. And in terms then of what you would do if you were in America now, would, would you vote for 
It depends I'm waiting on who, you know, to Elizabeth see... Warren, say, could you vote no, for her? Hard no. <laughs> I'm, waiting okay. to, I'm waiting to see who the Democratic nominee is. I think for a while we thought it would be Joe Biden, um, and it does seem like Elizabeth Warren's gained a lot of traction. If Joe Biden ends up being the candidate, I think it might be the first time that I vote Democrat. Wow, wow, wow. Uh, I voted third party in, in, in um, 2016 for Gary Johnson, a libertarian candidate. Uh, no, I, I, think, I think Trump has to go. I think it's good for the Republican Party if he goes sooner rather than later. I do not want want us to have, you know, many of his ideas, um, especially around tolerance and immigration and sort of respect ingrained into the party. So um, I would be quite happy to see a rather centrist candidate like Joe Biden be there for four years. And I, I think he would just be a, a healing candidate in many ways. Maybe we could just stop for a minute, have a pause, have a breather, remember what civility is like. Yes. Um, I wouldn't expect him to do anything particularly radical in terms of policy, but I think America needs a break. Um, and then we can reassess in four years' time. The concern, of course, is that the Democrats are going so far to the left, especially with most of their candidates. I would really, really struggle to get behind Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, um, and a lot of those other candidates who are just not being remotely realistic about money we can spend um, and how it would impact the economy. So in terms of UK politics, I I take it you can't ever see yourself voting for Labour, perhaps? Or could you? I guess guess it would depend. I mean, I'm such a huge... Again, I think it's important for all voters in any capacity to step back and acknowledge and recognise you will never agree 100% with the person you're voting for. And that's okay. I actually don't like the argument, well, what about what they said in 2007? Or, you know, what about this time they voted? And it's like, unless it's something really horrible or or obnoxious or, you know, they were going against human rights, you'll never agree completely. So you have to look at the candidate. You have to look at the full picture. I don't have a vote yet in the UK. One day, I hope to, working towards citizenship. You know, Liz Kendall... Lisa Nandy, these are interesting, exciting women who I think I have, they're probably horrified to hear, I have a lot in common with. I'm not helping them when I say that. Um, you know, obviously there are plenty of, of natural allies that I found in the Conservative Party. I was a huge fan of the Liberal Democrats until they decided that liberalism essentially meant a lot of state intervention and spending and Democrat men overturning the results of a referendum. Um, if they ever reverse those two things, I could see myself being a Lib Dem one day. So you mentioned the referendum there. In terms of Brexit, does the IEA have a corporate view on whether it's a positive or a negative thing? They don't. Um, before I joined in, in 2015, I think, or maybe very early 2016, like January, they pulled the staff. And the staff, the majority were pro-Brexit, but it was it was something like 65-35. I mean, there, there's been a chunk of of my colleagues who were remain and still are. Um, I think some of them have become more ground in that position just thinking, you know, they don't like the way that the negotiations have gone. Um, you know, I'm I didn't have a, a, a line during the referendum I didn't think was appropriate, but now I'm quite excited. I mean if we can actually get this over the line and hopefully this process is just a footnote in the history books, there are real opportunities to Brexit. Um, I'm not trying to pretend it's all going to be easy and you know sunshine and rainbows the second we leave. It's not. But it's exciting. And I'm thrilled that politicians have been made to do something and have an opinion these days because I think they were getting away for too long with them sitting back and relaxing, frankly. So it's been good and healthy for public debate. I mean, how do you square Brexit with your open, tolerant values? It, It seems to represent the opposite. 
Oh, I don't think it does. I think I I think. Or the custodians of it seem to represent the opposite. Yeah, it depends on who you're speaking to. I completely appreciate that. But, you know, if you get Dan Hannon, MEP, on your podcast or someone like him, you know, he, he speaks so beautifully and wonderfully about the opportunities to be more open and global. And that's where I sit, a liberal Brexiteer. Um, I appreciate that a lot of people voting for Brexit weren't liberal. And that's something we've been trying to square. A lot of people would like to see the UK halt all immigration, for example. I hope post-Brexit we can be more open than we are now. Um, but no. No, I, I, I don't think they're incompatible. Um, I think rolling back a layer of bureaucracy, making choice happen closer to home is a good thing. I mean, I'd like to see more powers devolved locally. So, you know, any opportunity to have your vote be closer to the power source, I think is good. I think it's accountable. You know, I hope in 10 years time when the UK is, you know, getting into these free trade deals with other countries, being more open, being more global, you know, everything else will fall into place. I suppose in a way... Uh, uh, Part of the issue with Brexit, when you describe that it's it's potential to be liberal, is that the people who campaigned for it and won didn't campaign really on liberal values. It was very much a kind of, too many people are coming here, we're sending too much money abroad, we should be looking after our own. What faith do you have in a government run by the Vote Leave campaign to all of a sudden pivot and find these new values. Yeah, again, I think it depends on on which spokesperson you're talking about. I think the official Vote Leave campaign was actually a lot better than than some of the fringe campaigns which were focused on immigration. Vote Leave intentionally didn't want to go down that line. Um, and I think, you know, people like Michael Gove, even Boris Johnson, these are small L liberals. Boris Johnson's been better in the, what now, three or four months that he's been prime minister on immigration than Mrs. May or David Cameron ever were. Uh, so it depends on the candidate. And, I, you know, I don't want to be overly optimistic. Again, as, as somebody who's been through the process myself, who knows I've had the easiest time of it and it's still been miserable. You know, I'm, I'm very aware that mistakes are going to be made along the way. Um, but if you don't make the change, you can't get the benefits. Right. And so, you know, yeah, there's safety in the status quo. But was the status quo really that great? I mean, if we if we go back to, I don't know, 2013 or 14, before all these referendums started and Donald Trump was still sitting in Trump Tower, you know, was the status quo something we could have gone on with forever? I'm not convinced. If you don't take those risks, you never get the reward. But it's what you change too, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And but- there's a fear that we're changing something far worse. And and that is a very legitimate fear. And I think we need to find allies on the left and the right to be pushing a more small L freedom maximizing liberal agenda. Um, but we could change to something better. And, and wouldn't we argue that at least we're now actually accountable for that? You know, what the UK does, it is accountable for it. Cannot blame the EU anymore. Uh, the IEA released a, a plan called Plan A Plus, creating a prosperous post-Brexit UK. Um, it's a mouthful, isn't it? It is a mouthful, <laughs> yeah. So how do we create a prosperous post-Brexit UK? Well, according to those authors, um, and I w- am inclined to agree, uh, you prioritise free trade and you prioritise something called mutual recognition in which you basically say to other countries that you trust in the developed world that have high standards, you know, we think that your rules and regulations are probably fine. We want to to get goods flowing, we want to get services flowing, we may even want to get people flowing in and out. Um, and, uh, you know, quite famously, this isn't my quote, but you know, the, the quite famous quote goes, if goods and services don't pass through borders, armies will. And, you know, free trade is really the solution. And, and 
virtually all economists are agreed uh, that it increases prosperity for all. So that's the focus. That's the path. But you might have some British businesses saying, whoa, 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 we've got inferior products coming into our markets here. We have high standards here. Scottish whiskey might say, whoa, 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 this stuff's calling itself whiskey and it's not. I mean, how do you protect? Mm, mm-hmm. not, and, and not in a protectionist way, but how do you protect quality from your own uh, producers? Well, that's why certain products will probably be exempt from these kinds of deals that you'll be making with Australia or Japan or especially the USA. Um, a lot of people want to propose that it's all or nothing when it comes to free trade deals. And that just isn't the case. I mean, the UK will have some say in what's on the table and what's not. The NHS, for example, is quite clearly not going to be on the table. And I think the suggestions that it would be are just plain fear mongering. Well, let's hope it's not. Um, <laughs> uh, now, the, 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 the report there, uh, how to uh, plan A plus create a prosperous post-Brexit UK, was quite controversial oh, with, the, yeah. with the Charity Commission. They, what they, a year they, it's been. They accused it of misconduct and mismanagement. Um, they said the, the publication of the, the event that uh, accompanied it wasn't sufficiently balanced and that mm-hmm. the publication breached charity law. The IEA then released a, an amended version. Um, I mean, did you agree with the Charity Commission findings? It's been a journey. Um, I, um, I think quite broadly, uh, we took many issues with them. And over the past year, we were told to remove this publication from our website to basically act like it never had existed. Uh, we were issued with an official warning for having published a trade paper, just to put in perspective, an official warning for publishing a trade paper. Uh, we, we fought hard against this and the official warning was rolled back. Um, and we did republish, uh, certainly taking certain things into account, but I mean, the broad paper, you know, the structure of it and, and the message of it, I think, is very much intact from the original. Um, the the charity sector is going through a lot right now, and the IA is certainly not the only think tank to be impacted by this. There are big questions as to what think tanks are. Should they be charitable? You know, should you be able to have that status? Uh, what should your activity be? And the sector, I think, is, um, and the think tanks are, are having very intense internal dialogue right now as to where that's going to go. Um, and, you know, this might seem like a niche topic. It is in some ways. But for us, it very much get down, gets down to, to crucial things like freedom of speech, ability to publish without having to retract. Um, and, and so it's, it's, it's touching on really key areas. Um, and, you know, the IA are in good conversations now with the Charity Commission. But it's been a rough year. I'm very pleased that publication's back on the website. I'm pleased that the official warning was rolled back. We just did not think that was proportionate whatsoever. In terms of you know, the rights and wrongs and, um, and the conclusions people will draw, I suppose one thing we could everyone could agree on is that in a way, registering as a charity restricted you in that sense. Mm. That in a way, you would be better off not registered as a charity, and then you'd be you wouldn't be re, you wouldn't be regulated in the same way. So for the IEA, which was founded in 1955 and is thought to be the grandfather essentially of free market think tanks, one of the first. Um, I think our charity status is important to us because actually, you know, Matt, we met through Question Time and, you know, we this paper got, this paper got you know, coverage in the media, but actually so much of what we do is just pure education. We speak to over 35,000 students every year. We create a magazine specifically for students. It goes to every single A-level classroom in the country. Um, so, and, and that's a huge part, I'd say probably the most important thing that we do. So that charity status does matter. I think in, in this context, of what happens over the pa- what's happened over the past year, um, the key for us is that if 
the sector wants to make changes, it's welcome to do so, but everybody has to be impacted by it. You can't single out the IEA um, because plenty of think tanks are commenting on Brexit, on the political scene, and um, the rule for one has to be the rule for all. So I think that's the conversation we're having now. Uh, as you say, the IEA was set up in 1955 by Anthony Fisher, yeah. who, uh, as well as being an advocate of free markets, was a battery farmer. I hope that doesn't reflect your working environment. <laughs> Not remotely. Actually, uh, he wasn't quite a battery farmer. It was It was worse than that. It was a form of factory farming. It was actually much more ethical, but he <laughs> he brought um certain mechanisms used in the United States over to the UK, and it was one of the first times that people were able to access poultry products to eat at a really low cost. Um uh, and uh, chlorinated. I don't. I highly doubt they were chlorinated. Um, and uh, he, I think he wanted to get into politics. I oh, hope I'm getting this right. He wanted to get into politics, and he spoke to Friedrich Hayek, you know, mm. renowned free market economist. And uh, he said, "No, don't do that. Uh, start a think tank." He said, "You know, we need those." Sec- look out for the charity commission. He said. <laughs> Oh, I think it was a slightly more relaxed time. He said, "We need those secondhand dealers in ideas to be promoting, um, to be promoting our, our free market values." And it turned out to be the best advice he could have given him because, uh, I mean, not only has the IA been hugely influential, especially during the Thatcher years um, up to now, but I, you know, it trickled into the United States. And I think uh, there's quite a famous quote that suggests that without Fisher, you wouldn't have had Ronald Reagan. Without Ronald Reagan, you wouldn't have had Star Wars, and you might not have had the collapse of the Soviet Union. So quite a chain of events for a chicken farmer. <laughs> you, you also worked for the Adam Smith Institute. I did. Um, and it feels like there's a sort of broadly similar... Sister think tank, yeah. Sister think tank. Um, do you do things differently at the IEA to, to what the uh, ASI would do? Yeah, having worked at both, I think I can I can say this in a, in a glowing way about both. Um, I mean, the IEA is bigger, slightly more straight-laced, um, and I think probably focuses on... Um, well, basically, the ASI is a, it's a lot of fun and uh, was willing to go. They were willing to put ideas out there that wouldn't necessarily gain traction right away. Yeah. Um, they were some of the first, I think, to talk about cannabis legalization, for example. And they're willing to come out with that stuff before it was popular or mainstream yeah. to do so. And they're reaping the benefits of that now. But I always, you know, my time with the ASI was always a little bit... Um, uh, yeah, it was a little more libertarian, I guess, and uh, a little more free in that sense. Uh, at the IEA, we're bigger, we're a lot more structured, and I, I you know, have a, I think have a lot of influence on things that can be changed in the next two to three years. In terms of libertarianism, um, I mean, should there be limits to it? You mean you don't think that my four-year-old should be able to jump in a car with their machine gun and drive down the street at uh, 2 a.m.? I don't yeah, actually have a four-year-old. Like that. Um, yeah, no, of course. Of course there should be a limit. I mean, in any... My motto is, is you know, quite the classic libertarian one, which is that you should be able to do what you want up until the point of harming others. Mm. Now, naturally, in any society, there are going to be limits to everything. And I'm not an anarchist. I absolutely believe there's a role for the state. And one of the most important roles for the state is actually the safety net. There are going to be people in your society um, who, who aren't as autonomous and who can't operate without help. And they should be protected, especially in developed countries that have a heck of a lot of money. So there's a role for the state. There are 
are limits, but um, I think so often the attitude of politicians who have the power is to do stuff and to regulate stuff and intervene on stuff that they have no business stepping into. I mean, yesterday, I'm thrilled to see that we saw the rollback of the porn laws. Um, You know, they were basically going to try to bring in a system that was going to risk everybody's data, that was going to lead to, you know, possible mass online humiliation of that data being breached. And... That is not the role for the state. It's simply not. They don't need to be involved in our sex lives. So I think, you know, the job of libertarians is not to advocate for some stateless society. Um, You know, we have plenty on our plate on the day to day about where people are intervening before we get to debating, you know, whether or not we should be forced to wear seatbelts. Do you feel like we're living in a, a, a kind of new era in terms of political communication and the roles of think tanks? I mean, your personal rise to prominence kind of reflects this, that actually there's there's more of a platform in the mainstream media on television on the airwaves for think tanks and for ideas and for people who can communicate well i mean thinking prior to this period really it was only politicians and the occasional you know there was one extra chair on question time whereas now there's two or three extra chairs on question time as well as the politicians that are on there um do you recognize that as a change and do you think that's a good thing I think there has been a change. I think it is a good thing. But I actually think it's predominantly been led by politics in a weird way. Um, I think without Brexit, without uh, Donald Trump, without Jeremy Corbyn, uh, possibly without Boris Johnson, without the way that political parties have been changing and making very new propositions, um, you might not have had this because we now do have a genuine battle of ideas on our hands. I mean, whenever this general election in the UK does happen, you have a prime minister who is um, very open about the fact that he believes that free markets and capitalism make the world go round. And you have an opposition leader who is very open about wanting to overthrow much of that system and wants actively to bring in a more socialist structure. That is a battle of ideas. And so in that way, I think think tanks have had the opportunity to step in and say, well, look, here's the body of work and publications and evidence we've been building from this perspective or that perspective for 10 years, 20 years, 50 years uh, that can assist in this debate. So, yeah, I do think it's probably been good for the think tank sector, but I think it's been led predominantly by politics. And do you do you prefer an era like this? Do you think actually it's easier when you've got someone that you can identify as a, an explicit free marketeer against an avowed socialist? Is it? Is, do you do you find that more enriching? Do you think well that is a clear battle line, and someone like Kate Andrews is built for a time like this, and I can have real influence? Or do you think well actually it's it's better if you have two leaders? You know, if you had a kind of social democrat Labour leader that accepted the market a bit more but wanted to redistribute within that or whatever. Mm. Do you think actually that's a harder enemy to fight or actually that person will be an ally or do you prefer the kind of clear divide? I'm torn on this. I'm not sure what I prefer, but I think this has to happen. I think what's become very clear is that, um, you know, people who believe in free enterprise and free markets and private property and, you know, a a lot of our fundamental values think that those things are just generally accepted and they're not. You have to keep making the case for it. Uh, And if you don't, sort of socialist ideas will pop up and crop up and, 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 and they'll gain traction because they always sound quite appealing until you actually implement them. So I'm not sure what I prefer, but I just suspect this had to happen. I think you have to confront socialism and and win on the arguments and win on the outcomes, I don't know, every 30 to 40 years. It, 
I, you know, there is something wonderful about the fact that, you know, Bill Clinton as a Democrat who followed on um, from, uh, well, George Bush, but really from Ronald Reagan's legacy, uh, was very much a capitalist free marketeer. Yeah, that does make the world easier. But now we have Bernie Sanders. Now we have Jeremy Corbyn and we have to fight this again. So I just I'm not sure if it's good or bad. I think it's inevitable. Do you uh, is there anything about socialism you like? No. <laughs> but, you know, say, for instance, the NHS, the idea that you have a state provider of health that's free at the point of use, no matter where you get ill in the UK, you will be looked after. I like the principle of universal access to health care. Uh, that is not unique to the NHS. Almost every developed country in the world, apart from the USA, has this. And most of those countries give their citizens better access to health care, quicker access to health care, and better treatment because it's not a socialist system, because they use market mechanisms. Not that, you know, you know, again, put the U.S. aside, people are not going bankrupt in Switzerland and Germany to access their health care. They're getting better health care because they're embracing the market. And I think what, you know, the things that we might argue are good about socialism aren't really unique to socialism. They're just values, right? The values that everybody should be able to access penicillin and that private property is important and that's something that should be upheld, that regardless of your skin color or your accent, you should be treated as an equal. These are values. And I think, you know, socialism might pick up on some of those, but their policy prescriptions are scary and dangerous. I mean... There'll be free prescriptions under Jeremy Corbyn, so at least there'll be that. Well, apparently everything's going to be free under Jeremy Corbyn, which is very believable. Um, But, you you know, it's it's, it's not about attacking the NHS and its principles. It's saying, is this system, which was designed in the 1940s and basically not touched since then, really still working for the 60-plus million people living in the UK? I think anyone having an honest conversation about that would be willing to criticise the healthcare system a bit more than we do publicly. Oh, but there'll be NHS staff and patients listening to this guy. It's been touched loads. It's been the internal market, uh, primary care trust, clinical commissioning groups. I mean, huge reforms to the NHS to try and introduce market forces and local autonomy into it. But they're not real market forces because they're all internal and essentially made up within this one very bureaucratic system, but, but which is structured from the top bidding down. against the state to provide services you, you, in local areas? You do. Um, but we've had a lot of issues with the private finance initiatives around that because you only have these absolutely massive corporates that can essentially get in bed with government, come up with some really cushy deals for themselves, which are often not very good for the taxpayer because, again, the whole thing is so centralized and controlled from the top down. So I, I, I just think if we look at the rest of the developed world and what they've done there, surely, especially those who voted Remain and who like Europe, we can learn something from France and Germany and Switzerland. But apparently, you know, this topic is completely off limits. I mean, I think for most people, it does feel like it's off limits. Now, I'm always open to ideas and everything, but... I'll give you a few uh, IA papers. Oh, well, please do. <laughs> please do. Um, but it does feel that the NHS obviously has a, a special place in the nation's hearts. I mean, do you think you can ever envisage a, a, a period in your lifetime where we have a, a national conversation about whether to, say, privatise the NHS? Oh, I don't think we'll ever have that conversation because I don't think you need to privatize the NHS. I mean, again, most countries have a system where the government pays for a heck of a lot of health care, but there's just more market mechanism to give patients choice. Um, I think we will have a grown-up conversation about it at some point. My deep concern is that we'll do it too late when the system cannot um, handle all of the demand. And I don't want people to get hurt in that process. I want to have the conversation long before we get to that point. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. 
Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You, uh, you, you say you studied at uh, St Andrews I and loved did. Scotland. Uh, Scottish did. independence is obviously a, 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 an ongoing uh, um, debate again. Uh, not that it ever really went away. Uh, the IEA is in favour of a federal Britain. Yes, devolving power. Devolving power. So devolving power. So a, a key part of that would be some sort of settlement for England, presumably. Would that be an English parliament? Well, so to be clear, I think the, the publication I think you're referencing is, is is Federal Britain. The IA doesn't have any particular line about um, whether or not Scotland or Wales or any other part of the country should, should go independent. Uh, but the key is to is to make is, is for voters to have as much control over their local government and local authorities as possible. And the closer you can get decision making to the actual voter, the more accountable it does tend to be. Um, and so, you know, I'm very interested in, in devolving tax power, even say devolving corporation tax to places like Manchester or Leeds or Birmingham. If you actually want businesses to be able to compete um, outside of London, you know, pushing the power to these more local areas is probably the way to go. Um, internal tax havens in the UK. Tax havens, just low tax-free societies, Matt. I think is what you mean. <laughs> um, but uh, in terms of in terms of Scottish independence, you know, I have to say I feel similarly to how we do about Brexit, which is that you can have another referendum. But not yet and not now. Uh, so when then? Well, I mean, and this is the interesting thing to debate. Is it 10 years? Is it 15? Is it 20? Um, but I think y- you very quickly can fall in, can, um, you very quickly can end up in sort of a dangerous cycle where you just make people vote until they vote the way you want. And I still, I, I think on Scotland, we're still quite close to that, frankly. I do appreciate big things have changed. And I do think Brexit has, has maybe arguably moved up that timeline a bit. Uh, certainly on Brexit, you can't have a second referendum until you implement the results of the first. How much of your I mean, role is, uh, do you see uh, your role as, um, obviously it's defending free markets. And freedom. Uh, just and, freedom, and individual freedom, <laughs> and uh, well, there's freedom to and there's freedom from, isn't that's there? True, I mean, that's where, true. where do you draw the line in terms of? I think I'm a bit more of a freedom from, probably. I think, uh, again, um, I don't want to be too um, broad sweeping here. You you don't want to tell people what they can do in every circumstance. You know, of, of course you don't. You you want to set the laws of society and the rules of society so that people know explicitly what they can't do. And then a lot of creativity and innovation comes from what you can do. And I think, you know, a very modern example of that would be um, Uber or ride-sharing apps and things like that. You know, you don't want to tell people you can only create businesses like this. You have to be, you have to say, you know, you can't do this and allow innovation to pop up in areas you could never even expect. Deliveroo, just yeah. eat. Yeah. Uber Eats. All of it, yeah. Bring me food now. Anything that allows us to eat. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. As quickly as possible. Yes. And as cheaply as possible. The dream. Um, <laughs> exactly, yeah. Um, 
I, I always wonder this, particularly with someone like yourself, where you clearly have a social conscience. Thank you're, you. Thank you for acknowledging yeah, that. I don't mean that's in a patronising <laughs> way, but you're basically kind no, I'm of... I'm glad that comes across. But you're a free marketer. And, and obviously, whenever you put, start to put people in that box, you go... Well, the kind of the stereotype is well. These are just people who want to keep keep their Soulless. own money, mm-hmm. keep the state out of their affairs because they've got something and they don't really care about anyone else. Um, that's clearly not true with you. How how much of a problem do you think your wing of politics has a perception problem in terms of people thinking? Well, you might get things done and you might deliver economic growth, but for who mm. and do you really care about people who are left behind do you think you, and how does your point on the compass kind of uh, deal with that and, and convince people otherwise yeah there, there's a major image problem and we're not very good at telling stories and we need to get better at telling stories and we focus far too much on the statistics we're talking about economic growth as if um, as if that that isn't benefiting everyone. I mean, economic growth is essentially making all of our lives significantly better. But we don't frame it in that human context. I mean, I guess one, the re- one of the major reasons I'm a free marketeer really is based on the evidence. It's hard to get away from that. Just looking at the you know the sharp decline in absolute poverty as countries like China and India have moved towards more free market policies. It's it's staggering. It's unbelievable. It really is like a modern miracle. And that is thanks to abandoning, you know, centralized socialist control and moving to a freer, more prosperous, more um, free enterprise focused world. Uh, But no, we're not great at telling stories. And the, you know, the idea around selfishness and greed um, definitely haunts people who have my perspective. Um, But then I, I also think when people start experiencing it for themselves, they become a bit more sympathetic. I mean, when you actually start paying tax, um, all of a sudden, you know, when people just say, oh, you could pay a bit more. Actually, a lot of people couldn't pay a bit more. A lot of people would struggle to pay their bills and to pay their rent if they could pay a bit more. Um, when you start framing things like the housing crisis in the context of the free market and you realize just how controlled and centrally planned it is, I think our ideas do become a lot more popular. Um, so I think it depends on the topics we're, we're considering. It depends on how we frame it. We do need to be better at telling stories. Uh, obviously, one of the big issues facing all of us uh, is is climate change, mm-hmm. um, extinction rebellion? At the point of recording this, um, have been uh, protesting in London now for a, for a couple of weeks. People on top of tube trains at Canning Town uh, on the morning that we've uh, recorded this. I know a lot of people have very mixed feelings about um, not necessarily climate change, but about perhaps climate change protesters. Mm. Uh, how do you feel about extinction rebellion? I'm not a huge fan of extinction rebellion, um, and. I guess the the major reason I'm not is because there have been a lot of climate activists for decades now who have been doing some excellent work to make this, um, to get this on the agenda and to get people like myself thinking a lot more about our daily activity. And I think their good work is kind of tossed out the window when people like Extinction Rebellion come along and try to overhaul everybody's day, everybody's week, everybody's year, and call for absolutely mad kinds of policies that just, you know, I wouldn't want to see implemented, but even if I did, couldn't be implemented. So what like? What what do they say that's mad? Well, you know, trying to get carbon emissions down, uh, to, uh, trying to get us to net zero by 2025, by 2030, would basically involve us going back to the dark ages. I mean, this is, you cannot, you cannot 
laugh in the face of progress if you want to solve climate change because solving climate change will be progress. Um, so I, you know, I, I do take issue with Extinction Rebellion because the much more thoughtful climate activists have got people like me thinking about my meat consumption, have got people like me thinking about recycling and where I'm buying things from. And, you know, I'm by no means a vegetarian, um, but it's on my mind. And, and, and I think for a lot of people now, if you said, would you consider giving up meat one day a week, they'd be much more open minded to that. That could have a huge impact. And then Extinction Rebellion comes along. And I think people just think, oh, it's silly. It's, a, you know, it's a it's a fringe topic. I'm not engaging with this. But don't you think they're right in the sense that as a as a as a planet, we're not taking it seriously enough. And the occasional shock tactic gets us all talking. And if nothing else, isn't that a positive thing? I think a lot of people are taking it seriously. In that case, they're not protesting in the right places. I think until countries like China and India get on board with this, we're not going to see meaningful progress. I'm not convinced the UK in particular is the country that you need to convince. Is there any part of you, though, as someone who's loathes to use the word campaigner, but you, you, you have values and you, you try and convince other people of them that thinks, well, actually, fair play, just in terms of tactics and things where you go, well, they've managed to set the agenda for a couple of days. If, yeah, I think it's a sh- it's a short-term goal, right? If you actually care about improving this for the long term, I don't think putting on lots of body paint and dancing around Westminster and closing down the roads and closing down the tubes and stopping people getting to work... What's wrong with body paint? Is... <laughs> There is a time and a place for body paint. What about the freedom of the individual to wear body paint? I am all for body paint, but there is a time and a place, especially if you want to be taken seriously. This sounds like the nanny state to me, telling me what I can and can't do with my body paint. Oh, jeez, you caught me, you caught me. Uh, It's a a short-termist goal. Yeah, we have been talking about it for the past few weeks, but Extinction Rebellion, I'm not convinced, will um, go down in the history books as the group, the activist coalition that saved the world. So how do markets save the planet? Yeah, I mean this this I think I think you're really hitting the nail on the head is that um we need to come up with the free market proposal to tackling climate change. And in so many ways um, the market has already moved in the right direction, right? I mean, people are taking real issue with fossil fuel, and I understand to some extent why. But it is, you know, market innovations that have moved us away from much dirtier energy like coal. You know, who do you think is creating these electric cars? It's not the government. These are companies. Um, you know, the wind power, the solar power, all of it. You know, these technological innovations are coming out of the market, and it is these solutions that are market-oriented that are going to move us to cleaner energy. Um, so, again, we need to be better telling that story. But I think I think it is very fair to say that we need more concrete free market proposals. It is probably not good enough just to say, well, the market will fix it. It needs to be very clear about about where that's coming from. And in terms of the IEA, are, do, obviously there's been some controversy recently in The Guardian suggesting that uh, IEA's publications throughout the 90s and noughties heavily suggested yeah. climate science was unreliable or exaggerated. Yeah. The Guardian um, suggested that we should remove books from the 1990s from our website because they were uh, suggesting in certain circumstances that climate change uh, shouldn't be taken as seriously as, as people were taking it. Um, we highlighted to The Guardian at the time that basically the majority of their list that, that they put to us um, had been published to the IEA before almost any staff member of the IEA had joined and made very clear we would not be rewriting history. We would not be taking down books. Uh, Even if they were damaging to the sort of, if your role is education and these publications are still available that are sort of perhaps suggesting a scepticism around the science, that would be miseducation, wouldn't it? Unless you... 
are still questioning the science. Uh, we're not printing them and mailing them out. We're not promoting them as as solutions to climate change, or we're not promoting them as as, as climate change denial. I mean. Uh, you know, all of the work that the IEA has put out since I've been there and since our staff have been there have been talking about the free market solutions to climate change. I do not think under any circumstances you should start banning or removing books to essentially rewrite history to act like they never existed. And we wouldn't do it, I think, in any other circumstance. I mean, there are, you know, terrible books out there that promote racism and genocide and all kinds of terrible things. Um, you would never ex- actually want to put them onto the bonfire and get rid of them. I, I think I think rewriting history is a very dangerous precedent to set. Yes. And, and, I, and I would also be really, really clear, <laughs> the books on the IA website don't come anywhere near things that I think you'd actually find offensive. I think, you know, given where the science was and given where attitudes were in the 1990s, I'm not surprised to see what was written. I wouldn't say it. I wouldn't probably ever say it. I wouldn't write it. But um, I, I just I just think that's such a dangerous game. It kind of feeds into, you know, pulling down statues and things. You're trying to deny what was in the past that everybody was a part of. Um, and I just think it's a mistake. So the IEA isn't some sort of incubator for climate change denial you're not working opposite people who go god what is wrong with these hippies there's nothing wrong with global sea levels you know people internally accept that human behavior is affecting the climate in a a negative way not not remotely i mean if you look at the articles you know even from this year that have come out from the ia on climate change it is all about acknowledging this as a problem um, and tackling it through free market solutions that wouldn't require say banning all flight travel or banning people from eating meat um, because as we know, whenever you get into aggressive policies like that, it's always the, the lowest paid and the poorest in society who who struggle the most. Um, no, I mean, they, they, I, I, they really had to dredge up stuff from decades ago in order to have a go at us. And, you know, this is not the first time The Guardian's done this. And I find it I find it relatively depressing because they don't actually seem to want to engage with our ideas. They want to go for some pretty low blows of things that don't even or later connect to the staff that were at the IA at the time. Um, and it's quite funny because when we do talk about immigration or something that they like, we are the Independent Free Market Institute of Economic Affairs. And then, you know, goodness forbid, uh, we don't think that net zero is achievable by 2030. We are the dark money, evil, climate change deniers, Institute of Economic Affairs. So, you know, pick one, please. But wouldn't it be, isn't this a huge opportunity for you to do something really radical and say, we're going to have, we're going to publish your paper on how the free market saves the planet stay tuned it's uh i would say it's at the top of our list right now for things that we're trying to commission and publish because that's I, the hot thing absolutely i think and it's getting hotter the environment and 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 climate change and how we genuinely solve this is without question the most interesting and important topic to be discussing at the moment and it is at the top of our list so yeah it is an opportunity stay tuned but get involved get some ex- Extinction Rebellion person involved, like it. Well, no? I mean, actually, to be honest, I'm sure we'd be. I'm sure we'd love to host them on a panel. Um, you know, when we do our panel debates and stuff, we always try to get people with different perspectives. Um, I'm not convinced they'll be authoring the publication unless, unless, unless anyone in Re- Extinction Rebellion out there has a great free market idea. I mean, please come forward. We I'm sure lo- there will be. I mean, we will, would love to hear from them. Yeah, it will be a fairly broad. In terms of the people that it. Well, actually, I say that personally. I think it could do some working class voices. I think that would. Um, 
to its yeah. some good. Well, actually, um, I, I really back you up there because, again, so many of the policy prescriptions at the moment are things that would hurt the poorest people the most. You know, basically make it extremely expensive to fly. Oh, OK, well, then Emma Thompson can continue to take her first class flights to come over to protest about climate change. But what does that do to the family who can go on holiday once every two years to Spain? You know, and I think I'm always extremely wary of those kinds of arguments because they hurt working class people the most. I I share some of those. I mean, the the problem I have is, deep down, I think they're right. I think we do need to take radical action to save the planet. And whether I like their tactics or not, and whether they annoy me from time to time, I mean, every political movement annoys me from time to time. So I don't want to be overly harsh on them. But yes, I, I you know, if they were on my flight, I would... <laughs> you wouldn't be thrilled. I'm just happy. But saved a poor year, you know, with the family and everything. But I'm just not convinced they're changing hearts and minds. Like you, you feel deep down that that they're right. I I don't know if they're right about. Uh, I mean, I saw some one of their um, activists on Sky News saying that within a matter of years, um, there would be mass starvation and people would be dead. And I don't believe that. I don't think a lot of what they're saying is right. But if you and I both agree that climate change is a real issue, we need to be more serious about tackling it. Does shutting down somebody's one holiday to Europe, you know, once every two years, actually change hearts and minds. And I don't think it does. Maybe not. But I, th- I think in general, I, I kind of... I, I think what I like is, even if I disagree with some of the things that they do, I kind of have respect for anyone who cares enough about the thing they believe in to stand in front of the public with a placard in a way. Oh, and I obviously yeah. have limits to that in no, terms I've of the got far loads right. Of but... time. Well, I've got loads of time for, for protesting. I mean, it's a it's a staple of a free society to be able to do that. I do think having, you know, walk through Extinction Rebellion now, um, it, you know, I work in the heart of Westminster, walking up to Trafalgar Square, watching all of it. It didn't always feel like it was quite a serious protest, let's be honest. It didn't. But isn't that a good thing? That's part of the British sense of humour. Have a bit of fun, you know, get some bongos out. I'm all, yeah, and again, Body um, you should be able to do whatever you want yeah, as, long as, you're, as long as you're not hurting other people. And I do think a lot of people's fun and the bongos and the dancing actually got in the way of, you know, people who work in coffee shops and people who are waiters in bars trying to get to work. <sighs> I take that point, but it's a small, you know, is it a relatively small, I have mixed feelings on this. Yeah. I think that, that That's fair. If, if that, I would be the one saying, but people have got to get to work. You know, I have very mixed feelings about it. It'd be great to get someone from Extinction Rebellion on, actually. Because, well, they've, they've been putting spokespeople up left and right, so I'm sure you could. I'm sure we'll get hold of someone. Yeah, um, nice balance in the round. Uh, so, Kate, <laughs> just in terms of your future then, you're uh, on the media all the time. Do you enjoy doing the media work? Um... Yeah, oh, I, d- I definitely enjoy it. I still find it quite scary sometimes. But you're so assured and calm. I mean, yeah, I think anyone who tells you that they're not nervous, especially before a big program, is lying through their teeth. And if you're not nervous, that's actually bad. There's something wrong. Yes. You should be. But I know I, I, I do enjoy it. I, I, I feel very lucky that I do get the opportunity from time to time to talk about what I'm most passionate about. And that, that really is about creating a, a more liberal world and, and allowing people to be a bit more free. And what about your friends and family in Connecticut? Are they like, oh my God, Kate's a TV star in the UK right now. <laughs> I mean, I don't know where particularly that accent was from, but they <laughs> travelled a bit, that person. It was fairly accurate. <laughs> they spend most of their time mocking my accent now. I still think I sound extremely American, but when I when I go home, um, I get I get some pretty obnoxious comments like, who do you think you are, British? <gasps> oh my God, um, you sound like the Queen. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> she no. says pavement instead of sidewalk, she's changed. To be honest, I'm in that phase of my life right now where um, a lot of my 
friends are starting to get married. So I've been home quite a bit and my bank balance is not thrilled about it for a lot of carbon footprint for as well. lots of weddings and things. I know, I know, but you you know, when someone asks you to be a bridesmaid, you don't say no. Um, and I wouldn't want to. So uh, they see me quite a bit, I'm sure more than they'd like. <laughs> but in terms of your future then, because you've still got your whole life ahead of you, you've established yourself uh, remarkably quickly. That's kind. Do you think, well, I might go into elected politics one day? You know, I did think that when I was a teenager. Um, and I I guess you never say never, but I've moved further and further away from any desire to do that. Um, Why? Uh, well, I think it's pretty miserable <clears throat> to be a politician, to be mm. honest. I, I, I actually don't think that's... I, I think you get so much crap. Um, and I think it's a difficult, difficult thing to do. I also think you have to be at the very, very top often to make real change. And I just think if, um, you know... I still don't really know what I want to be when I grow up, and I, but I do. I do know that I, I do know that I'd, I'd like to make change, and I'd, I'd like to, I, I'd, I'd like to be a helpful and contributing member of society. And for some people, that would mean going into politics. I'm not sure it would for me. Maybe he's an advisor, number Maybe, ten or something like that. I mean, gosh, um, yeah, dreaming big here. Who, who, who knows? Uh, if yeah, if somebody wants to learn about freedom, then I guess I'm that gal. <laughs> Well, we have a lot of influential listeners, uh, many of whom work in Downing Street, so I'm sure. I'm sure. Hi, guys. I mean, they'll be aware of who you are already. (laughs) Don't know about that. But, um, yeah, I don't know. What do you want to be when you grow up, Matt? Oh, uh, I just just want to be alive. Um, I'd like to see... I'd like to get to about 70, I think. This is really bleak, but do you ever... 70, okay, very ambitious <laughs> yeah. there. Is it? <laughs> well, it no. is for someone from no, my background, No, actually, it's, yeah. it's, it's not ambitious. That would be quite a young death these days. Do you ever um, see a, a... This is really bleak. Do you ever see a like a trailer for a, a movie coming out next year and you're like, hope I make it. That looks great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> not that short term. <laughs> okay, that's just no, me then. No, that's no. just me. Um, I feel like I am. I mean, even though I, I recognise my own immaturities, at 36, I feel pretty grown up in a way. Do you? I'm 29 and I feel fairly grown up, but I'm I'm pushing against it as much as I can. Yeah, I think you've got to stay silly. See, that's where Extinction mm. Rebellion are right. Maybe, Maybe the I IES should join up. Join, yeah. This is it. You care <laughs> about so climate silly. change. You, you, you want us to have fun. The, you know, the, the liberty of the individual. Extinction Rebellion would love you if those are the three criteria that it takes <laughs> to be an Extinction Rebellion. Well, I was trying to pitch it to you along your uh, All right. lines of I'm not interest. quite convinced, but I will think it over. I mean, it's incredible. People listen to this go, you've achieved so much at 29. Uh, That's very, very generous of you to say. I'm not sure I would be that generous to myself. Um, But, you know, I, I... Something I take really seriously, actually, and I have done for the past few years, is other young women, especially on the right, sort of in my think tank scene, you know, who promote free markets, I've, I've always thought it's really important to connect them to producers and to um, common editors and things to give them a bit of a step up. And my advice to them is always um, quite boring. Uh, work really, really hard. Yeah. Uh, really push yourself, especially now when you can and you don't have the commitments that you might have when you're a bit older. Um, because actually, uh, and I, we didn't really touch on feminism, and that's okay. But, um, you know, I think that women like myself actually have a lot of opportunity right now. I don't see that glass ceiling that everybody else talks about, uh, especially if you're a young woman on the right. You know, that that voice is desired in media right now. And if you work really hard and you push, I think you'll be relatively successful. So I, I try to help where I can, and I'm always happy to give advice on that front. 
And would you describe yourself as a feminist? I, I wouldn't, no. Why not? I'm an individualist. It, encom- it encompasses everything that is good about feminism and leaves behind Lena Dunham talking about how eating sushi on campus is cultural appropriation. But do you feel... But that's uh, that's uh, an issue with particular campaigners, maybe, in particular messages. But in terms of what feminism means, just in terms of equality, would you accept you were a feminist well, or not? A first, a first and second wave feminist, sure, when I think the definition of, femis- of, femi- of feminism <laughs> really was equality between men and women and the right to your own body and, you know, y- your vote and the rest of it. Um, I don't think that is what it means now. I think it is essentially a political movement, which is sort of the, the left arm of a, of a left wing uh, campaign. Uh, and I think it's very hard for women like me who actually like to talk about the statistics around the gender pay gap to fit into that. Just in terms of a kind of sense of solidarity with other uh, women, you talked about helping women on the right. Do you have a sense of solidarity with women on the left? You know, when you t- you know how hard it is. I'm sure you get comments on social media or uh, whatever. Do you also feel a sense of kinship with people like, say, Jess Phillips, oh, yeah. Anna Subri? Uh, oh, definitely. Anna um, Asubri would be livid I've put her on the left. But do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. People that you might not necessarily agree oh, with on, on I think, certain issues. I think, I think any woman who... Um, puts her voice forward or has a public face is in absolute solidarity with the others because we get vile, vile stuff. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, left, right, up, down. Um, uh, yeah. And, and, and you know, one, one, of the, one, one of the things I've enjoyed most about sort of, you know, green room chat is that you speak to these women on the left and they speak to me. And, you know, I've made some great friends. Made, Brilliant. That's yeah. so good. Oh, absolutely. You know, and, and we go on and we debate, but, you know, you come off and you have the most lovely chance and then you go for drinks and then you have dinner and before you know it, you're friends for life. And, Good. Oh, no. So there's definitely solidarity. There's a lot of friendliness. Um, I mention women on the right specifically because they're the ones who have actually said, you know, can you help? Of course, yes. No, I appreciate that. I mean, it's, it's good because it feels like we're living in a culture war. We are. But and it's I really not, don't want to live in a culture war. So it's it's reassuring that um, we are in a culture that there war. are bridges being built. It, yeah, we are in such a culture war at the moment. But when it comes to those one-on-one um, relationships, I actually, I don't see it. It's a so, lot healthier. So <laughs> most people are, are fine. Uh, yeah, people people are okay. People are okay. Let's not, <laughs> let's not give them too much credit, but they're, no. they're okay. <laughs> what a great note to end on. Kate, I hope this has been okay for you. It's uh, been more than okay. <laughs> thank you so much for coming thank on. Thank you for having Cheers. me. Well, there you go. Kate Andrews from the Institute of Economic Affairs. And I just think it's so important because it demystifies... You know, think tanks and uh, organisations like that, um, that doesn't mean there aren't questions to answer. But you can convince yourself that everything is kind of behind closed doors. And when you talk to people in the open, when you get a sense of who they are and where they're coming from and why they think the things they do, um, you can have fascinating discussions. Uh, And I'm so grateful uh, uh, that Kate came in and gave us her time. You can email the show, of course, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. I have to say, in the last few weeks, I've never known the show gets so many emails. It's absolutely uh, thrilling. Uh, And I I read them all, and there were so many that... uh, I can't read out, but uh, Matthew Wingham got in touch um, and said um, his podcast platform doesn't do reviews. So he's hit upon a really good point there. If you can leave a review on iTunes or Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever you listen, it really does help so much because it helps other people find it. 
Um, he said, I love the podcast. I've been listening since pretty close to the start. Amazing. He then says, and this isn't ama- uh, this is amazing, rather. I usually listen walking the dog. Brilliant. But we've moved around a lot. I've walked in with you on the sunny south coast near Fairham, Hampshire. The jungles near Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. The fossilised forest in Cairo. And now we're hanging out on various beaches around Auckland. Well, Matt, hello to you. And your dog, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Uh, Leon Edler gets up, uh, gets in touch rather. I'm sure he gets up as well. Um, it's that time of day. He says uh, he just wanted to drop a line and say how amazing he thinks the political party is. Thank you very much. He said, I've just moved from Brighton to Leeds with my wife and kids, and the podcast is the only thing keeping me sane. While I'm working from home. Thankfully, that's not uh, you weren't making the point about sanity about your wife and kids. Um, so, Brighton to Leeds, two great cities, Leon. Thank you so much um, for, for getting in touch and for letting me know. Um, and he said, Brexit made him fall out of love with politics, but finding the podcast has helped get him back in love with it, which means the world. Because, Leon, there are certain political issues at the moment uh, that, that make me sometimes question my faith and belief in it. But talking to people on this show keeps me keeps me sane as well so thank you um claire lohan gets in touch and says she's irish but has recently moved to taipei do i pronounce that taipei in taiwan sorry if i've pronounced that wrong uh, she says i'm an engineer working on offshore wind farm construction projects oh my word she went i want to throw my hat into the ring for the most random locations the podcast is downloaded regularly from an offshore wind farm my word well can you beat that? Email us, politicalpartypodcast at gmail.com. Well, Paul is already going to uh, try and beat that. He says he listens from Rally in North Carolina. This is incredible. You know, I sit here in a pokey studio in West London and uh, just imagine people in the Japanese wind farm. And this almost sounds like a Boris speech. And, and the Japanese wind farms and, and North Carolina and the fossilised forest of Cairo. Um, so thank you to you all, wherever you listen. And of course, if you listen uh, on a bus in Blackburn or uh, on a tram in Edinburgh or just in the park, um, wherever you listen, uh, your support means a great deal. So please do uh, leave a review, hit subscribe, just tell people about it for crying out loud in a positive way. And I'll see you next week. Thank you for Kate Andrews for being such a brilliant guest. Thank you to Daisy Knight, who produced this episode. I'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.